Father, this morning, it is warm here. Warm not only because of the sunshine and the summer heat, but because we have the fire burning in our hearts out of fervent love for our Lord, a fervent desire to do your work and to see you return. And as we contemplate further this morning, the man Jesus Christ, may you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 14. If your Bible is like mine, Revelation 14 is about to fall out. <laughs> Revelation 14, verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. We see a word picture here, don't we? We see Jesus sitting on a, th on a cloud with a crown and with a sickle. And a sickle is an instrument used for harvesting, isn't it? And what does the harvest represent here in Revelation chapter 14? None other than the second coming. There's our, there are two harvests. The first harvest are those, is that of the saved. They, they reap and it is gathered. And the second harvest are of the clusters of grapes and they are put into the wine press of the wrath of God. Now, when we look at the second coming, this picture, I asked a question. If we are Adventists, we are looking for the second coming of Jesus, are we not? Yes. When does the harvest take place? Isn't that what we want to know? That, as Adventists, that's one of our cardinal goals in life, is to be ready when Jesus comes for the second time. And according to verse 15, when is the time to reap? Verse 15 tells us, The time has come for thee to reap for or because the harvest of the earth is ripe. In other words, the second coming takes place when the harvest is ripe. So that begs the question, what does it mean for the harvest to be ripe? Let's look in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus gives a parable along the same lines, using the same analogy of agriculture and harvest time. We will begin in verse 26. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. Verse 28, For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately... The, he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Verse 29 tells us the harvest comes at a certain point. When is the harvest ripe? Look at the verse. What is the wording in the verse? When the fruit is brought forth. 
So what have we seen so far? The second coming is likened unto a harvest. The sickle is put forth to reap the harvest when the harvest is ripe. And when is the harvest ripe? When the fruit is brought forth. So now the next question, of course, is when is the fruit brought forth? What does it mean when the Bible says fruit is brought forth? Think with me for a moment. If I was a farmer, I've done a little bit of farming, not much. And let's say I want to plant corn. And I put corn into the ground at planting time. And as it says in this passage here, this parable, it brings forth the fruit, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. When the fruit is brought forth, what kind of fruit should I expect to see? Are you sure? I mean, if I plant corn, I'm not going to get apples or pears or oranges. You're positive. So what we understand, what you're telling me is that the fruit that is brought forth must be of the same kind as the seed that was planted. Right? But how do we know that that fruit is ripe? How do we know that fruit is mature? If I could put it this way, it is when the fruit that is brought forth looks just like the seed that was planted. That's when the fruit is brought forth. That's when it is mature. When there are mature seeds that can bring forth more fruit. That's when it's ripe. Follow the line of reasoning. So, in order for us to understand what this means when it says the harvest is ripe, when the fruit is brought forth, we need to know what the seed was that was planted. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Those familiar with this section of the Bible, what is, event is Jesus talking about? The crucifixion that is about to come. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, what does it do? It brings forth much fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, who is the seed? Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was the seed that died so he can bring forth much fruit. And the harvest then at the end, what is it? It is a 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold harvest of men and women that look just like Jesus. Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, it says this, When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Familiar passage? Mrs. White comments on what this means. She writes, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Jesus shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Revelation 14, the great harvest, what is, what is the, the, the farmer with the sickle, Jesus Christ sitting on the cloud, what is he waiting for? For the harvest to be ripe. What is the harvest that is to be ripe? The character of Jesus being perfectly reproduced in you and me. So then... How, how do we receive 
the character of Jesus? That's the question, isn't it? That's what we're here to figure out. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Let's look at what the Bible has to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is a scripture song. Some of you, I'm sure, know it. I will not sing it for you, however. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, But we all, with open face beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the what? Same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Bible admonishes us, how are we to be changed into the glory or the character of Jesus? It is by beholding the glory of the Lord. By beholding Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That is how we are changed into the same image to have the same character reproduced in us. The character of God being equivalent to His glory. You can study this in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. So where? How are we and where do we behold the glory of Jesus? John chapter 1 tells us. John chapter 1 We are told in verses 1 and 2 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. We covered that concept last night. But let's look in verse 14. And this Word, the Word that created all things, self-existent, pre-existent, equal with God, that Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And what were we able to do when he became flesh to dwell among us? And we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, specifically, according to the Gospel of John, where do we look to get a clear picture of the glory of Jesus, the character of Jesus? It is in no other place than the Word that was made flesh. Or, in other words, in the humanity of Jesus Christ. So what was Jesus like as a man? As we behold Jesus in His humanity, we have the pattern, the example, the goal to which we are striving because we cannot be the divine Christ or we cannot even be like the divine Christ. Philippians chapter 2, our theme text for this weekend. Philippians chapter 2, Verse 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation. He became a servant, or it's actually, the more accurate term is a slave. He emptied himself. He became humble. He became a man. Hebrews 2 gives us further information. Hebrews chapter 2, verse, let's begin in verse 
14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that, that is the devil. Let's skip down to verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Jesus Christ did not come as an unfallen angel. But he took the nature of the seed of Abraham, of fallen humanity. Jesus Christ came to identify exactly with the lot that you and I experience in life. And why is it so he can experience what it means to be a man, to be tempted as a man, so that he can help us who are tempted? Why? Because the goal of God is to restore the image of God in us. And we can't do it on our own. So Jesus became one of us so he can help us, weakened and feeble as we are, to become what God intends us to be. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Same theme, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We may feel discouraged because of our weakness. Temptations that we feel overwhelm us, but the Bible tells us that when we feel that way, we should flee to the throne of grace. Because at the throne of grace is Jesus Christ who experienced temptations as a man but yet overcame as a man. Not only is Jesus the divine one who can empower you, he is the sympathetic human Christ who knows how you feel. What it means to be tired and hungry and mistreated and falsely accused and misunderstood. He knows how you feel. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, but let us not miss the point. He was tempted, yes, like us, but the key point is, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 12. Hebrews 9 and verse 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, meaning Christ's blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If the sacrifices in the Old Testament time led people to repentance, led them to a new life, how much more the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And notice here the characteristic that is applied to Jesus Christ, even as a, the sacrifice, he offered himself without spot 
Those of you with marginal reading, tell me, what is another word for spot without fault? Jesus was a man tempted in all points like as we are, suffered through the infirmities that beset all of us, yet he was presented without fault before the throne of God. Let's look in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 10. Uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2. There is no chapter 10. Chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Jesus Christ in his, in his humanity, one of the key points is he came to give us an example. What is this example that Peter is trying to tell us? This example that we should follow in his steps, verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile, was guile found in his mouth. Verse 23, perhaps we have time later in another presentation to discuss that verse. But notice Jesus, the example is he did not sin. He did not sin with his lips. There was no deceit, no guile in his mouth, even within the context of his false accusations. Even when he could have defended himself, he offered no words that could be misunderstood. But how did he do it? Yes, he's our example. Yes, he's a man. Yes, he lived faultlessly. Yes, we are supposed to look into Jesus and follow his example, but how do we do it? How did he overcome? John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 25. We're going to look at a string of verses in the Gospel of John to understand this better. John chapter 10 and verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. First of all, did Jesus do anything in his own power? In his own name, should I say? Jesus said, what I do, I do in the Father's name. I represent my Father. I, am, I belong to my Father. What does that mean? Let's plumb this a little bit further. John chapter 14. John 14, verse 10. It says... Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. What does it mean for Jesus to do his works in the Father's name? It means he depends on Jesus, or Jesus depends on the Father to do the works through him. John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus goes even a step further in this verse. Jesus says here, I can of mine own self do how much? I can of mine own self do nothing. Jesus speaking in his humanity. As I hear, he says, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. What did, how did Jesus overcome? He did not live according to his own inclinations. He submitted his will to the Father. He says, I did not do what I want. I do only what the Father wants. And I trust him to empower me to do those works. In the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 56, paragraph 1, it says, To the consecrated worker there is wonderful consolation in the knowledge 
that even Christ, during his life on earth, sought his Father daily for fresh supplies of needed grace. And from this communion with God, he went forth to strengthen and bless others. Behold, the Son of God bowed in prayer to his Father. Though he is the Son of God, he strengthens his faith by prayer and by communion with heaven. He gathers to himself power to resist evil and to minister to the needs of men. If Jesus needed to pray daily for the needed grace of the Father, how can we overcome without prayer, without help? And Jesus Christ says, come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. As Jesus lived in his humanity, he leaves us the example for us to follow. Why is that important? Because the harvest is not yet ripe. And as we behold him, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Signs of the Times, October 29, 1894, paragraph 7. Jesus Christ is our example in all things. He began life, passed through its experiences, and ended his record with a sanctified human will. He was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet because he kept his will surrendered and sanctified, he never bent in the slightest degree toward doing evil or toward manifesting rebellion against God. Notice what it says next. Those who have a sanctified will, that is, in unison with the will of Christ, will day by day have their wills bound to the will of Christ, and will, which will act in blessing others and react upon themselves with divine power. We, too, may have a sanctified human will. And some of us, we sit and we think about our past. We think, how is that possible? You look at the preacher up on the stage and say, you don't know me. You don't know what has come in my past history. You don't know what I've inherited you don't know the baggage that I have to deal with, and that is true, I don't. But let's look at what Jesus knows. Desire of Ages, page 48, paragraph 5. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature, even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his early ancestors, earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. Jesus Christ inherited baggage, make no doubt about it. He was a man that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he accepted that lot so he can share in our sorrows to help us in time of need. The Faith I Live By, page 23. The Savior took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life that men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. Because Jesus overcame with our same nature, with the infirmities of humanity that we deal with, it is our hope that we can overcome. He says, the prince of this world cometh 
said Jesus, and hath nothing, found nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. Notice the next words. So it may be with us. Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. Hallelujah. So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. Can someone say amen? Amen. But that's not even the most powerful part. Listen carefully. Same page. We need not retain one sinful propensity. As we partake of the divine nature, hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong are cut away from the character. And we are made a living power for good, ever learning of the divine teacher, daily partaking of his nature. We cooperate with God in overcoming Satan's temptations. We need not retain one sinful sinful propensity. Hereditary and cultivated tendencies can be cut away. We can say, it's in my genes. And even if that is true, which I'm not sure that it is, but even if it is true, the inspiration tells us even that can be cut out. The power of Jesus reaches back farther than even our ancestral inheritance. Deeper than the genes in our DNA, Jesus, he experienced it and he can help us overcome every sinful propensity. Is it possible? It's not just possible. It is absolutely essential that a group, a generation of human beings experience this level of oneness This same reflection of the character of Jesus. Revelation 14. We're coming full circle now. Revelation chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having what? His Father's name written in their foreheads. They have the Father's name in their minds. The Father dwells in them. Their works are by the power of the Father. They belong to the Father. Just like a little child when he buys a new toy, he puts his name on it. This this group of people, they have God. God puts his name on it. He says, they belong to me. Verse 4. These are they, the 144,000, which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Verse 5, and in their mouth was found no what? No guile. For they are without what? Fault before the throne of God. Whose characteristics are those? Jesus had no guile in his mouth found without spot or fault before the throne of God. The 144,000 at the end of time have the character of Jesus perfectly reproduced in them. And that is why. That is why in verse 4 they are called the first 
fruits. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14, what do we read about? The great harvest. And what is the harvest waiting for? Well, for the, the, the reaping, excuse me, for the fruit of the earth to be ripe. And what are first fruits? Strictly speaking, yes, in the Jewish economy, in the ceremonial laws, the first fruits represent the very best, the offerings that they weigh before God during the feast of first fruits. And that is only a representation, a down payment. It is presenting before God, this is only the first portion representing all the rest that is to come. In other words, without the first fruits, there is no harvest. The 144,000 are the first fruits, and until the 144,000 stand up and have the character of Jesus fully, perfectly reproduced in them, there can be no harvest. The character of Jesus perfectly reproduced in us. It's not just a neat saying. It's not just a cliche. It's not just something that we come and we, we sing songs about. We put a big poster up behind us on the podium. It is not just that. It is a very sum, the purpose of our existence. And Jesus will not come. He cannot come until it is done. Hebrews chapter 11, and we will close. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. Faithful men and women all through the ages, their heroic acts of faith, their sacrifices, their mighty acts recorded here for our admonition. But let's look in verse 39. Verse 39, it says, And these all, meaning all of these that have been listed before in this chapter, they, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. What promise? The promise of the city which hath foundations, whose maker and builder is God. They haven't received it. They're sleeping in the dust. But verse 40 says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Those faithful men and women, yes, they are mighty men of faith, mighty women of faith, but they're still dead in their graves. And the Bible says they will not, they cannot receive the promise without us. So what are we to do? Chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, because of what we have just stated, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses represented by those whose blood cries out from their graves, as well as the cloudy witnesses in heaven, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What are we to do? We are to run this race. And how are we to run this race? We need to cut off all the weights. We need to let all those sins can't be put aside, but we don't have to do it alone because Jesus is our author and the finisher of our faith. But it's not just that. Jesus is our example, yes. Jesus is our helper, yes. Jesus is the one that can enable us to overcome, yes. 
But Jesus is the finish of the race. To be like him, to have his character, to have his mind, that is the finish of the race. My time is up. But how many of us today? We want to say enough. The harvest is, needs to come now in our generation. And that means I want to be like Jesus. That's my desire. Let's pray. Father, this morning we know that you look down upon us with pitying mercy, compassion for our weakness. Because Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He made himself of no reputation. He became one of us. So he can understand the travail of being a human being on this sinful planet. And we say, hallelujah, Jesus. We praise your name for being a merciful high priest. But Lord, we want to say today, enough is enough. We want to be more like you. And we recognize it's not just a cliche anymore, but we know that it is what is going to determine the time of your return. May we be faithful unto death, obedient unto death, even as Jesus was. And may you reproduce your character in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.